We are uh, we're in the midst of this series of sermons uh, entitled The Bible and um, these sermons are meant to help us think biblically and we've looked already at a, a few different subjects, the Bible and gay marriage, the Bible and uh, last week the subject of racism. Uh, and the idea is that we would have the mind of Christ, that we would have a God-centered worldview. Uh, we will return to the subject of racism that we started last week in a few weeks. Um, but tonight I want to address a different matter. I want to talk about uh, the Bible and miscarriages. I want to talk about the Bible and infant death. And I particularly want us to address the question, do those who die in infancy, whether it be by miscarriage in the mother's womb or whether it be after birth, do they go to heaven or do they go to hell? Now, there are three reasons why I am compelled to address this subject tonight. The first reason why I want to address this subject is that it has confronted us in our study of Romans 5, and in particular it confronted us a couple of weeks ago when we were in Romans 5, verses 13 and 14. So let's go back there and begin there. Romans 5, verses 13 and 14. And let's just remind ourselves of of Paul's argument uh, in those verses. Romans 5, verses 13 and 14. Let's just read them again. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Now Paul's argument is that Adam is the head of the human race, And that His covenant with God was our covenant with God. His sin was our sin. His fall was our fall. We've been talking at length about those realities. To prove this point, Paul points to those people who lived between the days of Adam and Moses. And during those years, between Adam and Moses, there was no external law. There was no law written on stone tablets. Nevertheless, God was still calling people sinners. He was still declaring their actions sins. In fact, we know that God was still counting sins even during the days between Adam and Moses because He brought judgment, including the flood of Noah and the confusing of the languages at Babel and the raining down of fire and brimstone and and Sodom and Gomorrah. Yet God cannot justly count something as sin if there is no law because sin is by definition the transgression of a law. And so the implication that He's giving us there is that even before the law was given at Mount Sinai, there was a law that mankind entered into through Adam. A covenant of works that basically said, obey God and live, disobey God and die. 
And that law is woven into the very fabric of the human race. The sins of the people between Adam and Moses were the expression of the spiritual death that had already come upon them because of their sin in the garden. And their physical deaths were an expression of God's further judgment. And so the clinching argument that Paul makes is that there were some people who lived in the days between Adam and Moses who never sinned the way Adam did. They never transgressed. That's the word he uses. Right? A transgression is the actual breaking of a law. And he's saying that there were people who existed between Adam and Moses who never transgressed, at least not the way Adam did, and yet God brought the judgment of death upon them. How do we explain that? Well, the answer is that they must have been guilty even from birth. And that this can only make sense through this principle that he's teaching there, federal headship. And so I argued a few weeks ago, and it's been uh, uh, really the consensus argument throughout the last several centuries, that when Paul talks about those who never sinned the way Adam did, he has in mind little babies, infants, children who die in infancy. And his point is that the fact that God would bring death upon them is evidence that even from birth they were guilty in His sight. And the only way they could be guilty in His sight is through the principle of headship. And if it was true of Adam, then it can be true of Jesus. And thus the gospel makes sense. As Adam was the head of all mankind, as proven through these babies who were judged though they had never actually sinned, So there's also this principle of federal headship through Jesus who brings His people life. And so it was very clear in verses 13 and 14 that Paul considers all people guilty before God, including those people who never live into maturity. And the rest of the Bible confirms that. David said in Psalm 51 that it was in iniquity that his mother conceived him. It wasn't that his mother was doing anything wrong in his conception. It was that he, from conception, was a son of Adam, one of the line of man. And therefore, from conception, was wicked and guilty before God. Psalm 58.3, The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. Ephesians 2 says that we are by nature children of wrath. And so we have this testimony of the Scriptures that that we are all born inherently sinful and guilty. But if that's true, then the logic would seem to imply that babies do not go to heaven. If they are like us, by nature, guilty before God, then on the day of judgment, justice would demand that they be condemned. And that doesn't sound good, does it? And it's not what we want to hear. And so that's reason number one why I want to, to address this subject. The second reason I feel compelled to speak about this tonight is that today would have been uh, the fifth birthday of uh, mine and Crystal's own son. Um, David Elijah Nell was born at UNC Hospital February 19th, 2007. Uh, for several hours, the doctors, the doctors did what they could 
to save his life. He was not born too early, as happens sometimes. It happened with my sister. She had twins that were born too early and did not survive. But David was born with several uh, congenital issues, particularly something called CDH, a congenital diaphragmatic hernia. He was born a little before 10 in the morning and survived until mid-afternoon. Uh, Crystal and I were blessed that we did get to spend time with him. We got to talk to him, to pray over him. We got to hold him close. He, he died in our arms. Um, some of you were with us uh, during that period of our lives, and so you, you know these things. If you uh, weren't with us during those days, Crystal has uh, some things on her blog that you can look at that kind of recount David's story and uh, some of the things that we went through. Uh, in those days, we, we buried him in a little cemetery uh, close to my grandfather's uh, childhood home up in Northampton County. Um, there are certainly still moments when we feel a pang of loss uh, it just every once in a while. It's not, it's not that often, but every once in a while, uh, you know, sitting at the house and, and I'll see the two boys and there'll be a pang of there's supposed to be three. Right? There's supposed to be one more that was supposed to be here. But ultimately, I think Crystal and I would both give testimony that God has proven himself faithful and uh, we know that he is sovereign over everything that took place uh, in David's life. But I I want you to know that as we address this question, it's not simply an intellectual curiosity. This is is real life. Do I have reason to believe that my little boy is experiencing the glories of heaven Or does the logic of Romans 5 demand me to believe the other? And then the third reason why I want to address this subject is that I know that Crystal and I are not alone at having experienced the loss of a child. There may be some in here who experienced the loss of an infant after birth the way we did. And I imagine there are probably several in here who have experienced miscarriages um, Perhaps you've lost several children this way. Uh, miscarriages are, are actually quite common. Um, I didn't know that before I became a pastor and, and, and got to talk to people about some of these more private things. But we don't, we don't talk about it very often, but miscarriages are, 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 are really quite common um, in our society. And there's real pain and there's real loss that are associated with miscarriages. So what are we to think about these little babies who, who never made it to birth? So that's uh, the question that I want us to try and answer. Now, before I try and move us in that direction, let me say this first. And I think this is the first and foremost thing that I must say. And so I want you to hear this well. The ultimate grounds of our peace and comfort in the loss of a child must be our faith in God as one who is sovereign and one who always does what is right. I'm going to say that again. Our ultimate grounds of peace and comfort in the loss of a child must be our faith in God as the sovereign one and as the one who always does what is right. Now, I am going to provide some reasons why I really do think we have a basis for believing that infants go to heaven. I do think there's biblical grounds for that argument. But I do not think that can be the ultimate basis of our peace. We should not say to God, you've taken the life of my child and I can be okay with that and I can be at peace only as long as I'm sure that you did what I think you ought to have done. That's not the grounds of peace. 
Rather, we must be willing to say, God, you are the potter, we are the clay, and I know that you do what is good and right. And so ultimately, I find my peace by trusting in you. Now, most of our time tonight is going to be spent on some of the arguments that people sometimes give for believing that little babies are in heaven that we can't accept. I believe there are some arguments we can accept about why we can think that infants are in heaven, but there are a lot of bad views out there that people try and argue this way, and and I want us to know that uh, we we can't accept those arguments. We, We must be careful that in our desire to have grounds for believing that our children are in heaven, that we do not buy into false teaching, that we do not buy into unbiblical ideas. Even in this matter, we must submit ourselves to the Word of God. And so the following arguments have been made, and I think each is unbiblical, and each must be rejected. So I'm going to give you seven of these. The first, we talked about it this morning, won't spend much time on it, but it's universalism. It's those that argue that everybody goes to heaven, and so therefore infants go to heaven. Uh, They believe that God will not condemn anybody to hell, And therefore, there's no worry about little babies. The problem is the Bible contradicts universalism many places, some of which I quoted for us this morning. And I don't believe we can take the Bible seriously and accept a universalist position. Now, the second argument that sometimes people make is what can be called second chance theology. And it's the proposition that at least some people who die get a second chance to believe the gospel after death. And for infants, the idea is that God brings the child to maturity after death and then gives that person the free will to either choose to believe or to choose not to believe. Now, there's, there's no biblical warrant for this idea of a chance to believe after death. The Bible says in Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment. What's more, this view is built on an inherent Arminianism that says God owes every person the opportunity to be saved of their own free will. The Bible clearly teaches that God does not owe us anything except judgment for our sins, including the sin in Adam of which infants are culpable. What's more, the Scriptures teach that no one will actually choose to believe on God apart from the work of God, apart from regeneration and being born again by the Holy Spirit. Faith is a gift from God. So even if this view was true and that God owes infants a chance to believe on Jesus after salvation and then lets them choose, I mean after death, lets them choose after death whether to be saved or not, it wouldn't bring any real help because apart from the Spirit of God, they wouldn't believe. And so the second chance theology is, is, is just not true. Now, there is a related uh, third argument um, called limbo. Uh, some Roman Catholics teach, uh, it's called in Latin, limbus infantum. And this teaching is that infants, when they die, go to a place that exists between heaven and hell. They're neither condemned and tormented in hell, But they're also not given the gift of of God's glorious presence in heaven. Rather, infants live for all eternity in a middle place, a middle realm. And it's not purgatory. It's different than purgatory. 
Now, this argument comes from a medieval reading of 1 Peter 3, 18 through 20, in which Jesus is described as preaching to spirits in prison. And some Christians in the medieval days understood these to be the souls of Old Testament saints and understood that prison to be a place in between heaven and hell where the souls of Old Testament saints went. And they believed that when Jesus had died during the three days between the cross and the tomb, that Jesus went to that middle place. He preached to those Old Testament saints the fullness of the gospel. They believed and were taken to heaven. This is not at all what is taught in 1 Peter 3, 18 through 20. Okay, there is no middle realm to which Jesus went after His death. There is no middle realm to which babies go at death. Jesus told the thief on the cross, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. When Christ died, His Spirit went to paradise, not to a middle realm. And thus this idea of an eternal limbo for infants is off base. And to be fair, even most Roman Catholics today reject this doctrine. It is not a part of official Roman Catholic teaching. It is just uh, something that has appeared in Roman Catholic history into which some today still hold. Now the fourth argument has been with us throughout Christian history. And it's the argument that infants can be saved through baptism. That is, there is the argument that not all babies go to heaven but those that are born and are baptized will be saved. Augustine, Martin Luther, um, both of these men thought that the waters of baptism were used by God to cleanse the infant of original sin, to remove the guilt that we have in Adam. Now this argument is built in part upon a misinterpretation of Romans 4.11 that allows a person to link circumcision and Old Testament practices with baptism in the New Testament and to suggest that to receive these signs is to receive salvation. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time repudiating that argument because we spent a lot of time on Romans 4.11 just a year or so ago looking in depth at that verse and we saw clearly there that that was not the meaning of that verse. And we're getting ready to go to Romans 6 in just a few weeks. And in Romans 6, we will explore again the meaning of baptism. Baptism does not save. Baptism, the waters of baptism, does not bring regeneration or the cleansing of guilt. What's more, with this view, it would mean that only some infants go to heaven and those that were not baptized do not. I do not believe there's biblical grounds for the argument that infants are saved through baptism. Now the fifth argument connected to the other one, the last one, is the idea that infants are saved by the faith of their parents. Thus only some infants are saved, and it is those who have at least one parent that is a true believer. Now, the main text for this argument is 1 Corinthians 7.14. So why don't we look there? 1 Corinthians 7.14. This is the argument that if the child has at least one believing parent, the child will go to heaven on the basis of the parent's faith. 1 Corinthians 7.14.
Here's what we read. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Some suggest that the word holy in this verse means saved. And that Paul is teaching that a child is made holy or set apart for salvation by having a believing parent. Now, I hope you can see the problem with that interpretation. Namely, that if we were consistent, we'd also have to say that the believing person's spouse is also saved by the faith of the spouse. Because Paul doesn't say here that it's just the child that is made holy by the faith of the believing parent. The verse also says that the unbelieving spouse is made holy by the faith of the believing spouse. And yet the Bible teaches all over the place that we ourselves must have faith to be saved. I cannot be saved by the faith of my wife, nor can I be saved by the faith of of my mom or my dad or my grandmother or uh, the fact that my great-grandmother was a godly woman. That does not make me a saved person. I have to believe. And so to interpret the word holy here to mean saved, as some people do, is incorrect and it won't work. And so children are not saved by the faith of their parents. Now the sixth argument, I think, is probably the one that most people in our culture believe. I think it's what most people in our culture believe to be true. It's the argument that infants do not need to be saved because they are by nature innocent. Right? They believe that babies are born innocent. And it is only later that babies become sinners. Yet as we have seen in Romans 5, as we have seen in Psalm 51 and many other places, the Bible contradicts this teaching that babies are innocent. We are all born dead in sin. We are all born guilty before God. And we actually do sin as soon as we are capable of doing so. And so we are not innocent from birth. Now, if we are Christians and we're thinking rightly about these things, we know that. But strangely enough, one of the most common views of Christians is built on this idea of children are born innocent. And it's the last argument, and it's namely that there is such a thing as an age of accountability. That there is a period in one's life when one passes into accountability before God. Now, first of all, the term age of accountability is somewhat misleading because most of the people who hold to this view don't actually believe that there's a magic age at which accountability begins. That is, most of the people who hold this view wouldn't say when you hit 8 years old or 10 years old or 12 years old or 16 years old, that's when accountability before God begins. Most who hold to this view would say that it's different for different people and that it has to do with maturity. That one child might be mature enough to be held accountable before God at this point in their life. And another child might be mature enough to be held accountable before God at this point in their life. And they would argue that some, because of handicaps, never reach a point of accountability before God. Now, here's several things that need to be said about this teaching of an age of accountability. 
first, the Bible never speaks of it per se. That is, you'll never find the term, you'll never find it used in that way in the Bible. And there really is no passage that explicitly teaches this doctrine. Second, it is absolutely true that there is a point in a person's life when he moves from being unable to understand certain concepts to being able to understand those things. Concepts like sin and grace and faith. Now, I don't think this happens in a moment. As I don't think it was, you know, on my seventh birthday, suddenly I can understand these things. Rather, I think it's more of a progression than a moment in time. A small child can have a very limited understanding. And yet, as the child grows, his understanding of these things increases. So, for example, a newborn baby girl does not know what sin is. Now, before long, that baby girl will learn that there are some things that she does that make mommy and daddy sad, things to which they say no. And later, that little girl will learn about rules and consequences for breaking rules. And then she will learn about God and the rules of God and the consequences of breaking those rules. But these things happen in a progression as the child grows and develops. Now, that said... The Bible does recognize and teach that there are little ones who do not yet know good from evil. That is, that there is a time in our lives when we do not yet know good from evil. So turn with me to Deuteronomy first. Deuteronomy 1. So look at Deuteronomy 1, and I want you to look at verses 34 through 35, 34 through 35, and then we're going to jump down to verse 39. But let's begin with verses 34 through 35 of Deuteronomy 1. And the Lord heard your words and was angered, and he swore, not one of these men of this evil generation shall see the good land that I swore to give your fathers. Now go down to verse 39. Verse 39, And as for your little ones, who you said would become a prey, and your children, who today have no knowledge of good or evil, they shall go in there. And to them I will give it, and they shall possess it. But as for you, turn and journey into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea. And so here we see clearly stated in the pages of Scripture that there are children who have no knowledge of good or evil. Now, I don't think God means that they don't understand the concept. I think from birth, we have some concept of good and bad. That is, a baby senses food is good. A baby senses pain is bad. But a little baby doesn't yet know how to discern good from bad when it comes to morality. What behaviors are good? What behaviors are bad? What is truly morally good? What is truly morally bad? Another passage that teaches that little children don't yet know good from evil is Isaiah 7. So look there, Isaiah 7. We're going to look at verse 16. Isaiah 7, verse 16. Isaiah 7, 16. 
For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. Now I think this verse is even clearer because it teaches that there is a time in a child's life when that child does not yet know what is evil and what is good, and therefore does not yet know how to refuse the evil and to choose the good. And so, uh, in our arguments against an age of accountability, I do want to be clear. The Bible recognizes what is obvious, what we know just from everyday experience. Little babies do not yet know what is truly good and what is truly evil. And the Bible recognizes that, okay? Now that said, the problem with the age of accountability argument is this. Underneath it is the idea that there is a point in a child's life in which the child passes from innocence into guilt. Or even more precisely, that there is a, the idea is that a child passes from a point in which God would be wrong to condemn the child to a point in which God would be right to condemn the child. And yet, as we have seen, children are born sinners, guilty before God, and He would be not only just to condemn them, but we have every reason to believe that His holiness and righteousness demands that they be condemned. That is, even before a child reaches the point of knowing good for evil, the child is already guilty because of Adam and our connection with Adam. And so it's because of that that the age of accountability argument cannot work. So then, what are some positions on the eternal state of infants that are biblically faithful positions? Well, first, let me say that a baby inside a mother's womb is as much a genuine human being with a living soul as a child outside its mother's womb. That is, human life begins at conception. A a fertilized human egg is a human life. It is human, right? It's not the fertilized egg of a rabbit or an alligator or a monkey. It is human and it is living. Nutrients are being taken in. Growth is taking place. Development is happening. So calling it a fetus instead of a baby does not change the fact that you are dealing with human life. And abortion is wicked because it is the destruction of human life. And so when I'm speaking of infants, I'm not just speaking of those children who who made it to birth. I'm also including those children who died in the mother's womb. A second, for a position to be biblically faithful, it must be in accordance with the Scripture's in several areas. Jeff Spry is a pastor who's made these four statements. I thought they were excellent, so I just, I'm going to read them to you, and I agree with them wholeheartedly. Four statements. Number one, no theory of infant salvation can be biblically sound if it ignores the way original sin leaves all humans, including infants and the mentally incapable, both guilty and totally depraved. Any theory that refuses to take original sin and total depravity into account is wrong. Number two, if deceased infants and the mentally incapable are to be saved, their salvation can only be because of the sovereign grace of God. 
The Bible clearly teaches that the Father chooses persons to salvation from eternity past and that salvation is solely based upon His grace alone. MacArthur says there's no better illustration of salvation by grace alone than the salvation of a deceased infant. Number three, if deceased infants and the mentally incapable are to be saved, their salvation must be on the basis of the perfect atonement of Christ on the cross. The Bible clearly teaches that Jesus is the only way anyone is ever saved. And then number four, if deceased infants and the mentally incapable are to be saved, then their salvation must occur before death because the Bible never teaches of a second chance theology or of a salvation after death. Now there's two historic positions that takes these things into account. One that has been held is that some infants are elect and the other infants are are not. And the other position is that all infants, as well as the mentally incapacitated, are elect. And according to these two propositions, God places His electing love upon an infant, causes the infant to be born again. And though the infant is not yet old enough to have an intelligent faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, though were he old enough, he would believe, because he's been born again, By virtue of being born again, that infant is now a true child of God whose guilt has been removed by Christ's atoning work at the cross. That child is saved by the grace of God through Jesus Christ. It isn't that the child is innocent and God must bring the child to heaven. It's that the child is part of the wicked race of Adam and yet God chooses to show mercy and He does so in abundance. Now, The difference between these two views is that one says that God chooses only some infants to be born again and saved, whereas the other view says that God chooses all infants as objects of His saving mercy. There is a misunderstanding among some that all Calvinists hold to that first position. That is, some people who don't like Calvinism will sometimes try and argue that Calvinists believe that God only chooses to save some infants and that He chooses the rest to go to hell. In reality, most Calvinists today and throughout history have held to the second position, that God chooses to save all infants by His grace through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. Listen to a sermon from Charles Spurgeon. Uh, He preached this in 1861. Here's just a tiny little snippet. He says, Now let every mother and father here present know assuredly that it is well with your child if God hath taken your child away from you in its infant days. You never heard its declaration of faith, and it was not capable of such a thing. It was not yet baptized into the Lord Jesus Christ, nor buried with Him in baptism. The child was not capable of giving that answer of a good conscience towards God, but nevertheless, you may rest assured that it is well with the child, well in a higher and better sense than it is well with yourself. It is well without limitation. Your child is well without exception. He is well infinitely, well eternally. 
Perhaps you will say, what reasons do we have for believing that it is well with our child? Well, before I enter upon that, let me make one observation. It has been wickedly, lyingly, and slanderously said of Calvinists that we believe that some little children perish. Those who make that accusation know that their charge is false. I cannot even dare to hope, though I would wish to do so, that they ignorantly misrepresent us. They wickedly repeat what has been denied a thousand times what they know is not true. In Calvin's advice to Omit, he interprets the second commandment, showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me, as referring to generations. And hence he, Calvin, seems to teach that infants who have had pious ancestors, no matter how remotely, dine as infants are saved. And this would include the whole race. As for modern Calvinists, and he's talking in the 1800s, I know of no exception, but we all hope and believe that all persons dying in infancy are elect. Dr. Gill, who has been looked upon in late times as being a very standard of Calvinism, not to say of ultra-Calvinism, himself never hints for a moment the supposition that any infant has perished, but affirms of it that though it is a dark and mysterious subject, that it is his belief that he thinks he has Scripture to warn it, that they who have fallen asleep in infancy have not perished, but have been numbered with the chosen of God and have entered into eternal rest. We have never taught the contrary. And when the charge is brought, I repudiate it and say, you must have said so because we never did and you know we never did. If you dare to repeat the slander again, let the lie stand in scarlet on your very cheek if you be capable of blushing because we have never dreamed of such a thing. With very few and rare exceptions, so rare that I have never heard of them except from the lips of slanderers, we have never imagined that infants dying as infants have perished, but we have believed that they enter into the very paradise of God. As my belief, as the belief of most Calvinists I know, and I believe it has biblical warrant. So, what are some of the biblical reasons for believing that all infants are chosen by God, saved by the blood of Christ, born again by the Spirit of God before they die? Well, there's a lot of them. And so at this point, I just stopped in my message. And um, next week, we will look at those. Um, Let me just point you back to one passage to hold us over until next week. Go back to the Deuteronomy passage. Go back to Deuteronomy 1. Let me just show you something there. Deuteronomy 1. (coughs) Excuse me. Deuteronomy 1. We're going to begin again in verse 34. In this passage, Moses is recounting for us what happened with the people of Israel during their years in the wilderness. The people of Israel are soon going to be passing into the promised land. And they're being reminded of what has happened in their past. And so beginning in verse 34, here's what we read. And the Lord heard your words and was angered. And He swore, Not one of these men of this evil generation shall see the good land that I swore to give your fathers, except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh. He shall see it. 
And to him and to his children I will give the land on which he has trodden, because he has wholly followed the Lord. Even with me the Lord was angry on your account and said, You also shall not go in there. Joshua, the son of Nun, who stands before you, he shall enter. Encourage him, for he shall cause Israel to inherit it. And as for your little ones, who you said would become a prey, and your children, who today have no knowledge of good or evil, they shall go in there. And to them I will give it, and they shall possess it. But as for you, turn and journey into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea. So God saw the unbelief and the wickedness of His people Israel in the wilderness. And when they refused to go up and take the land after He had told them to, He swore that that generation would not enter the promised land. He turned them away from the promised land, made them to wander 40 years until that entire generation had died out. Yet God exempted the little ones, the children, from that punishment. The children, the little ones who were alive, when their parents acted in unbelief and wickedness, God said they will be allowed to enter the promised land. God says that these children were not yet at a place of knowing good from evil. Were they guilty in Adam? Yes. But they themselves had not knowingly committed good or evil. And they were granted to enter and possess the promised land. What I'm going to suggest next week is that that is how God works that those who die, still at a place of not knowing good from evil, are saved by the grace of God. Their guilt in Adam is removed by the blood of Christ. They are born again by the Holy Spirit. And they are brought safely into heaven. And that what Spurgeon said is true, that those of us who have lost children in infancy, our children are far better off than we are, even in this moment. And one day we will look to be with them. We'll look at this in more detail next week. We'll see the evidence, but let's, let's pray.